dates are here. What's the bad news? He was torn apart! <laughs> Obviously. Welcome back to Don't Open This Podcast for the third part of our Stranger Things series. We are your hosts, Mike and Tim. Join us today as our brains merge like Professor X and Cerebro, delving deep into the darkest corners of Hawkins to unearth a fresh batch of the films that shape Stranger Things. Season three. Let's do this. It's good to be back. It's great to be back. We could cover some stuff we saw. Munster's trailer? Should we talk about that for like a, a hot second? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> I won't be seeing it. <laughs> like, it's, um... It's... Don't even try to be Mr. Positivity. What are no, you gonna say? like, I'm gonna watch it. <laughs> yeah. I'm probably not gonna pay for a ticket. Because it Fair doesn't enough. look like it should be played in a theater. I agree. Like, I can understand what they're going for in terms of, like, if the goal is... Nickelodeon Halloween special? <laughs> <laughs> like, like I grew up on the the Munsters. I want to film it like it's a, a modern take on the old Munsters style and even film it like it was done on a 70s set. But if you're filming it digitally and you're doing it at a different frame rate, it's like it's this weird juxtaposition of you're trying to make it hokey and kind of nostalgic while also making it kind of look too, I don't know, surgical and modern, that it ends up just looking odd. I think you'll agree that comedy that doesn't land is probably the worst genre to try and sit through. If a horror movie isn't scary, but it looks cool and it's got atmosphere, maybe I can sit through it. But man, I didn't even crack a smile at any of what was supposed to be funny. And if he just cast anyone with acting chops to play Lily, maybe an Eva Green or anyone other than his wife. Yeah. He might convince me that he was trying to craft something like special, but I I see it as another weird passion project to a man who I don't know why his passion goes into those corners, but I don't know. I checked my watch during the trailer. Yes. (laughs) During the trailer. That says something. And I was like, oh my God, there's still halfway to go. So all right. So I'll, now that I'll we're check we're, it out. Yeah. Now that we're done being negative Nancy's here, let's move on to season three. Season three. A much different, darker. We start getting horrier this. Yeah. Horrier this Horia. season. <laughs> Those more are the deleted horrific? scenes. Yeah. More more yeah, horrific. Deleted <laughs> like, scenes. Hawkins the N- after NC dark. seventeen. Hawkins after dark. That's good. But no, this is. Uh, I think season three, like we had talked about uh, in the past seasons, each one has its own identity. Mm-hmm. This one, you know, you get that Day of the Dead horror film opening, which yeah. I think is like, it's them saying like, they're growing up. They're not little kids. They're watching an unrated zombie movie by the king, George Romero. And if you like that movie, we cover it pretty heavily in our horror sequels that don't suck episode. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, that's one hell of a way to set the tone, I think. Yeah, it's like they purposely put it there as that hard juxtaposition of, Chapter two is done. We're now starting off on kind of like a new thing, which I think this season, they still do it in the previous season, but I think this is the one that really starts taking advantage of the, not just the A and B plot, but now we have such a cast of characters that it's not just, 
the kids story and then Hopper and the adults story. It's the kids group A, kids group B, kids group C and Hopper and this. And I think they keep that balancing act going pretty well throughout this season. I agree with you. And I don't know if you and I are in a minority. People that love Stranger Things tend to love it as a whole. But I do feel like season three, from what I hear from fellow fans and watchers, they seem to have problems with season three. Like a lot of people that I've talked to, I don't know, they 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 can't tell me why. They just say, ah, that's not like, that's my least favorite season. And I think that tightrope element you're talking about, the amount of different storylines that they try and follow with different people, it is a bit jarring, I think, in, in the going when it starts, but we're going to be covering some really broad topics in, in, in this season as influences. I mean, some of what we're talking about is going to be almost like classic American dramas and yeah. some of the most beloved, like Michael J. Fox properties, you know, it really, and then it also goes to like some truly old school, like hardcore horror. They really, they, I think they really tried to stretch themselves. Um, I could also imagine the Duffers knowing that they got their green light and, and then this thing was a juggernaut by season three. It was just like so huge. Yeah. Um, I remember taking the day off and we spent our whole 4th of July not going to parties. Oh, yeah. Uh, Aaron and I just watched the entire season. Um, so there was a lot of anticipation. And as two creators that hold a bar pretty high, they probably were worried about seeming like they were running out of steam. Like we can't yeah. make season three feel just like the other two. Which, I mean, it's the, the issue with any creative large lightning in a bottle scenario of this is the the first story or this is the first book or this is the first movie that it's been an idea that's been kicking around in my head since I was a kid and we finally got it out there and we created it and everybody loves it. Great. That first one was 20 years in the making in that person's head. And, and then they're like, nothing else. Okay, yeah. what else you got? And it's like, oh, uh, okay, so you want another season in two years. Uh, we'll work on it. So it's like 20 years, then two years, then one year. So I think it's, they probably had to pivot if they didn't already have all of that in their head as far as like a beginning to end story. It didn't sound like that's the case. They might have big beats, but not specifics. But then that's when season two was kind of the surprise of, oh, okay, so um, we'll do this. And then that ended up being kind of the connective tissue for them to then work on what their ultimate end goal is from there. I think that's why season two was so character driven. And then season three was when they really start kind of flexing their muscles of, okay, we can juggle five stories. Yeah. I think um, season three, I would call like a trapper keeper from hell. Because <laughs> when, I, when I think about like the way this season feels, it's got the mall. It's got a ton of neon. It, it, it seems like the colors in this season are all very garish. And even when you look at some of like the mall outfits... They, oh yeah, like the, the they sailor. Call back, yeah. yeah, they they call back to some movies we're going to cover, but but it has like I think a, a patchwork feel. Yeah, and it's weird when I first watched that season since I binged the damn thing in a day. I kind of do remember when I would talk to people about it. I kind of remember telling them that I wasn't blown away by the first half, but the back half like knocked my socks off and it worked as like a like a five hour movie that was really good. I did go back and watch I didn't watch the whole season uh to prepare for this, but I did go back and watch the first couple episodes because I wanted to see if like I was being a little harsh because I expected so much because they blew me away for the first two seasons. 
And I have to say that opening episode, it actually starts off pretty freaking cool. You know, you get a lot of cool shit yeah. in that very first episode, which I don't think we're going to go chronological, you know, through each episode, but we yeah. probably, maybe we should start with a couple of the things that you see pretty immediately, like film references. Well, I think pretty early on when we get introduced to the kind of a lot of the initial action takes place around the the pool and the all of that the, the fun action. stuff. Oh yeah, even the the action. And I know actually, I didn't even think about it until you mentioned it earlier. First and foremost, the man Billy. And showtime. Afternoon, ladies. Afternoon, Billy. Take the new suit, Mrs. Wheeler. Thank you. Yeah, Tim and I were talking right before we started recording, and uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High is a quintessential 80s sex comedy. And it's actually, I think, one of the best ones. There's there's a reason that uh, it's so beloved. And it's rough around the edges, and it's, it's a bit sophomoric and pretty sleazy. I, I think some people might call it problematic today, because there are some situations that go down uh, between certain characters. I'm not going to spoil any of it. If you want to watch it, it's real kids. Well, it's actors, but they're portraying real kids in high school. And kids in high school do some stupid shit. And not all of it is like perfectly PC and, and the way an intelligent adult would approach something. And I think this movie has that air of realism to it. And some of the characters, you like parts of them. But other parts of them are, are pretty shitty. Um, and that's sort of like, I think, a template for what the Duffers brought into this season in terms of maybe the blossoming sexuality of some of the characters. And they they kind of present uh, a Mrs. Robinson sort of situation that we'll get to. <laughs> Mrs. Wheeler. No. <laughs> I, I, I just, uh, I don't think I need any lessons. Oh, you see, I think you do. But that opening... Billy doing a slow motion walk <laughs> by all of those moms all turning their heads and he is wearing a red bathing suit and I could not help but see the whole Phoebe Cates getting out of the pool or the hot tub uh, in her red bikini. Apparently it's one of the most rewound and paused scenes in, in VHS history. Are you aware of that? There's well, like a thing yeah, about that. And, and evidently they even make the joke in season four when we get to that one for the next episode. Oh, yeah. About they do. when they start working at the video store. It's like, oh, she rented Fast Times at Ridgemont High. And the tape when it got returned was at like 37 minutes and 20 seconds. It's like, that's the yeah. scene. <laughs> that That's how Steve knew she liked ladies like, yeah. from that moment. But yeah, I mean, that's... Uh, that comes back later, too, where you've got two characters. It's Robin and Steve working at that, uh, is it an ice cream shop? The outfit reminds me of, of Judge Reinhold's outfit in, oh. in uh, Fast Times. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's like a lot of callbacks like that. And uh, Fast Times wasn't really a big mall movie. There are mall elements for sure. And I do think that that comes into play as well. With It's really a vibe. Like, like yeah. the whole vibe of Fast Times at Ridgemont High is definitely in season three quite a bit. But yeah, so that's one of the openers. Did you want to add more to, to Billy? Yeah, so Billy... Let's I talk about... Like, we're going to talk about Billy. For I, I like talking about Billy because I feel like he's a character I granted, like, reasonably so. I hated in season two, not because of, like, oh, he's written poorly. It's like, no, you're supposed to hate him. He's like, he's a jerk in season two. He's, he's still, still a jerk. In, yeah, and then he's still a jerk in season three. But then you start seeing like the cracks in the facade here and there. And then we start kind of learning more about him. And then by the time that Billy's gone, it's like, 
oh, it's kind of nice when you see like some flashbacks to Billy later on, especially you note know, like Dacre Montgomery, I think is his name. In interviews, just seems to be like a sweetheart. And then you see him as Billy, and he's like, oh, he's the jerk here. So we have him hitting on Mrs. Wheeler uh, as all of the the pool ladies eye him as he's the the lifeguard here. So they kind of flirt a little bit in season two when he shows up at the house looking for the kids. And then he kind of outright flirts here and kind of introduces himself and opens them up to like, oh, I'll give you some private swimming lessons and all that. I love how they go they go through each type of, of stroke. <laughs> I know all the styles. Freestyle, butterfly, breaststroke. Oh. oh. You okay? Uh, I didn't think you, I didn't think you taught adults. It's very well done. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's the, the fun writing of saying it without saying it kind of deal that just makes it more entertaining than if they were to just outright be sexual in a scene. So he finally decides, or rather Mrs. Wheeler finally decides that she might be ready to have an affair with Billy and they will both meet at such and such a place. And on the way there, that's when Billy ends up in the accident that ends up resulting in him kind of getting possessed or the the start of a possession throughout the rest of this season. And I know it's probably, if you were to ask the Duffer brothers, they will probably not say this is an influence, but that is very an affair to remember. If everything goes right, and yes. I mean for both of us, in six months, here, I started to write it out. You have a date, my beloved, July the 1st at 5 o'clock. But you don't say where. Will you name the place and I'll obey? There is a good pool out at uh, Motel 6 on Cornwallis. It's very quiet. Oh, yes, that's perfect. It's the nearest thing to heaven. <laughs> McCary's 1957 movie with Cary Grant and Deborah Kerr. So... It's exactly like a fair to remember. They just, they say that they promise to meet back up and see each other. And then there's a tragic accident that prevents one of them from being there. And the other one thinks that maybe they don't really love me if Deborah Kerr was possessed by another worldly being. So. <laughs> I, I understand if you're angry with me. I just, I wanted to explain why I didn't come last night. I don't know if it, it if it lines up exactly. Um, so go watch it on, I guess, Turner Classic Movies and leave a comment and let us know if a fair to remember really scratches that itch for uh, season three Billy. Well, we also established that the Duffers, much like your two hosts and probably a bunch of you listening, we're all like hardcore film fans. We do a horror podcast, which crosses into like sci-fi and dark fantasy and all that, because it's a really great genre to cover and talk about. But Tim and I grew up watching so much. I mean, I've seen Chariots of Fire five and six times and an officer oh, yeah. and a gentleman and all that. So I would imagine that those duffers were, were sponges like us. And uh, you could have nailed that. You might get a, a, an email from one of them being like, nice reference pull right there. Uh, you never can tell. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's the big difference between like growing up as a, you can specifically be a horror kid or you can just be a film or movie kid of just like, I just love cinema. Yeah. <laughs> like if it's there, I'll just watch it. It doesn't matter. It raised us. Mm -hmm. The television. Uh, <laughs> along with good parents. But so as Tim mentioned in the beginning here, season three has a lot of those A, B, C, D kind of offshoots and 
One of them is definitely influenced by the Terminator. That involves a Russian killing machine. The arrival. The target. The pursuit. The confrontation. The Terminator. Arnold Schwarzenegger is the Terminator. Read it all. So we end up with this whole kind of subplot throughout the season. So Hopper and Joyce's kind of story that they get embroiled in is all of this land selling conspiracy to Russian operatives and all of this stuff going on with kind of the the corruption of their town's mayor played by Carrie Elwes and all of that going on which ends up getting them involved with this Russian killer that is hunting them down the entire time trying to clean them out because they are finding out too much and it is very like T-800 going around with the like the the short severe haircut and the muscle T with his silencer pistol and hunting down Hopper. He, he doesn't talk. He, he's just sort of like a, I think he might have a line or two once. The guy doesn't monologue. Yeah, his early introduction, he's sort of this T-800 kind of walking killing machine. And it's weird because like the whole Russian angle kind of reminds me of Red Dawn. <laughs> Calumet, Colorado, population 8,200. Before the sun sets, foreign soldiers will march victorious through the streets. Get in! Eight high school students will take to the mountains, fight for freedom, and become a symbol to unite America. Not bad for a bunch of kids. Wolverines! Red Dawn, rated PG-13. In the 80s, I mean, you had a big thing where, like, from Rocky 3, is it 3 with the... Uh, Rocky Four. Rocky Four. Rocky Four ended the Cold War. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but in the 80s, I mean, we had, you know, the Iron Curtain and all this stuff. So if you want to watch some some 80s films that involve uh, Russians as the enemy, which is oddly timely right now, uh, <laughs> but you had Rocky Four, you had um, uh, Red Heat was an Ar- another Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. Which actually, he, he was the Russian. I'm yeah, he, sure he, was, he was the Russian in that. But he yeah. was a good Russian. He was the badass in that, in that movie. Yeah. But they kind of worked that in, like, Invasion USA with Chuck Norris, you know, was like all these different factions of, of, of villain all coming together and like attacking America. But like Tim had mentioned, you know, the Terminator, uh, which doesn't deal with Russia, that that is a major through line to this. And it kind of propels the narrative. I think when when he comes on screen, you know, now you've got like a, a human threat that's coming after people we care about. And it's sort of offset and and takes it all into this. There is a major push on like conspiratorial thinking and what are they up to and all these layers that keeps going way into the fourth season. But that's where Nancy comes in with her whole angle, which I just before I hop into because I know Nancy and Jonathan have their whole shtick this season. But as far as the Hopper thing, I think what really drives it home with the Terminator of Hopper throughout season one and two. Hopper got stuff done. Like Hopper was the guy who is ready to rough and tumble and beat people up. And then this was the point where like he gets into fights and it's like, oh, he might lose these fights. Yeah. And this guy just like can't be stopped. They scuffle a couple times. And <laughs> yeah. He's still chasing him throughout the season. And I think that's just like he doesn't stop. He can't get hurt. He just keeps going. I feel like you tell me if you agree this season. Hopper is Indiana Jones 
in a Magnum PI like getup. Yes. There's like the, that's how I feel about this season Hopper. Um, <laughs> it's, it's Indiana meets Magnum PI. It's a very yeah. Chippendale <laughs> Rescue Rangers for, I guess. for sure. <laughs> But yeah, I, I agree completely. Like, we'll even mention, uh, well, actually, we could probably mention now. Like, I know we said we're not doing it chronologically. When Hopper's having that fist fight at the end with this guy, when they finally, like, have their final battle next to the generator as all He's this is He's pushing going. them towards that. Yeah, yeah, and they're, like, pushing each other towards it. It really reminded me of Indiana Jones with the fight with the the tall, or the big guy, when they're fighting just next to the propellers of the plane. Isn't he like a mechanic or something? He's yeah. just like this jacked, yeah. He's like David and Goliath kind of kind of yeah. matchup. And he finally ends up like in the propellers. Yeah, they die similarly. Yeah. There's like a switch up and then a death. It's, it very much harkens back to that. Yeah, which while not exact, I would not be surprised. Like who wasn't an Indiana Jones kid growing up? So that would definitely be something that they may have pulled from. So we really shouldn't talk about season three any deeper until we touch on the introduction of a mainstay character who plays heavily all the way through this season and season four. And that would be Robin, because Steve is now pretty tight with the kids and he gets a job at the mall working at Scoops Ahoy. And we meet this rambunctious, um, you know, motor mouthed girl Name Robin. It's very like His Girl Friday. It's like the the equally matched back and forth between the the two of them. And they kind of function as a pair of Steve who probably wouldn't have been able to complete everything he did this season without her and vice versa. I feel like she has that fast talking modern woman vibe from a lot of like 50s and 60s movies. Like Robin reminds me of that. She's not even just a foil for Steve. She's like as rambunctious and more quick-witted. So it took me a little bit to get used to her. Yeah. I know my friend uh, Kate, my wonderful co-worker, at one point I was talking about Stranger Things at work and I likened her to almost having a Gilmore Girls vibe, but better, like, because I liked it. <laughs> and Kate was like, what do you mean a Gilmore Girls vibe? And I was like, consider yourself lucky that you've never had to watch the Gilmore Girls. It's, it's just the very snappy. Yeah, it's that super quippy kind of vibe. That's a yeah. bit exhausting, but I think her character is supposed to be that. I don't I don't think Maya Hawk like, you know, is going against the direction of the Duffers. I think they wanted that kind of character. I actually grew to really love the relationship between Steve and Robin. It is really cool. Yeah. And I, I feel bad. By season three, I want... Steve to have like a, a confidant like I want him to have someone and it's nice that he has her yeah because and then it's a case of well we want Steve and Robin together well Robin announces towards the end of the season spoilers for season three no like, we've covered they these have a people, moment yeah <laughs> you don't get spoiler it. no spoiler <laughs> alerts anymore for you but yeah so towards the end of the season when they finally have a moment together and she explains to him like I'm a lesbian. The person I was talking about is this girl in a class. And it's it's not disappointing because you want to see Robin and Steve together. But then it's like, but they don't lose anything. Steve still has like his buddy Robin and Robin still has Steve. And they continue on as a pair. It doesn't let Steve screw it up. He can't possibly yeah. kiss her and then have it not work out. It's like, you don't even have a chance. Yeah. And then so you have like the, the awkwardness of, of like, oh, they broke up between summers and season five. It's like. No, they're just, they're still buds in season four and they're partners throughout the rest of it. He kind of, he ends up being like a pretty in pink, like ducky, <laughs> like, like a ducky character to Robin. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely, like, I think we mentioned all the, the Hughes 
things last season in regards to like the kind of the ball feel and all of that. But I, some of that carries over into this season too. Yeah. I think Especially before it's gone. They're, they're, oh, it is gone. You're right, though. But the John Hughes films are so timelessly perfect. They they inspired almost any film that involves young relationships. It doesn't oh, matter yeah. who, from Kevin Smith all the way to the Duffers, it, it doesn't matter. But I do think, like, mall culture, it, it plays super heavily into this season. And we could give you guys, like, a list of mall-related films um, like chopping, chopping mall. Yes, that's exactly. You know, AKA Killbots. They broke into the mall for the wildest all-night party of their lives. It's dead meat. But you're never alone in the chopping mall. What's that? Robot blood. Shopping mall. Where shopping costs you an arm and a leg. I highly suggest anyone that loves 80s cheese, please watch Chopping Mall. You can find it anywhere now. It used to be a little bit harder to track down, like for home viewing, but you, you could find it streaming. You could buy the Blu-ray, which is super awesome. But Chopping Mall is about a bunch of teenagers that uh, decide to party overnight at a mall. And at the same time, this mall is being um, guarded by robot yeah, guards. Yeah, like experimental robot guards yeah. that go awry. <laughs> it's like if you crossed like the short circuit Johnny Five robot with like a 70s erector set. Yeah. It's like very, very hard edged. And they're rolling around on the on these like tire, uh, tank treads. And yeah. they go crazy. They, they get shocked by lightning. And you get to see people's heads explode. Uh, oh, you get yeah. to see like kids actually... Because we're talking about references, if you've watched um, the sequence in Fear Street where they're uh, loading up the the water guns, and if you look at the sequence towards the end of this season where everything goes down in the mall, we're going to get into that much heavier in the end of the episode. I do think Chopping Mall influenced that a little because in that film, the ragtag group of of like regular suburban kids they do go and raid different stores and they outfit yeah. themselves, you know, ready for battle kind of stuff. So um, I would consider Chopping Mall probably is a, a, an influence on season three. Not nearly as well done as season three, but it's still super fun. <laughs> Maybe not a direct influence, but horror at a mall with kids banding together with what they have. I think that just... There's also the Phantom of the Mall, Eric's Revenge. He's there behind the wall. You all tried to destroy him, but now you had better be nice to Eric. Eric Matthews is still alive. Or Eric won't be nice to you. Phantom of the Mall, Eric's Revenge. Uh, which has a title that leads you to think it's a sequel, but it's not a sequel. It's just the Phantom of the Mall, but they slapped Eric's Revenge on it. And that is a hysterically bad, but very entertaining 80s take on the Phantom of the Opera, sort of. It's not great, but if you love uh, kids hanging out at different 
kiosks and talking to the weird people that work at the mall. I think that's a, a great film um, for that, for like the banter between people. And Pauly Shore, who I don't really understand how he had a career, but Pauly Shore is in Phantom of the Mall and he's actually one of the strongest performances in that entire film. <laughs> I, I don't know which what that le- says. That lets you know what you're in for. Um, so yeah, if you want a nice double feature, watch Chopping Mall and Phantom of the Mall. Those are two great ones. So yeah, like as far as talking about Robin, they kind of have this whole side adventure going throughout this because they end up, in addition to, actually, we didn't mention Luke's sister, Erica, also oh, yeah. was introduced in previous seasons, but now she starts becoming kind of an actual character that joins the group to an extent by the end of this season. They need somebody who's small to get through like air ducts and things like that. So she joins on with them and kind of extorts them for free ice cream and all of this. She's like the bishop uh, from Alien. She's she's like the bishop of Stranger Things 3, like crawling through the air ducts. It's, he could dislocate all of his shit because he's not human. So it makes sense. I don't even know if Erica's fully human. <laughs> Erica is a character that I, I want to like more because they'll have scenes of her where it's yeah. like, we'll talk about it more in season four of her like being herself. And it's like, oh, she is a nerd. But instead of trying to hide it, it's like, no, she's like, openly does stuff and then in season three it's like she's fighting against like i'm not a nerd but she kind of is she's like great at math but i think sometimes it just it goes a little bit much that annoys me because she'll antagonize people or she'll kind of in a life or death situation try to still like get one over on people and it's like Mm -hmm. why like (laughs) you'll let your brother die if like oh he doesn't say i'm right or like those kinds of situations yeah she's a tough character because I genuinely, she she was a standout that impressed me that I wasn't expecting to impress me when she was a pint-sized ball buster. Like, I really, really found her to be quite funny in the earlier seasons. And I could see where other people really liked her as well. And from what I gather, I think the Duffers wrote her in. They wrote a bigger part for her in the future seasons because of the amount of fan love for her. But I agree with you. We talked about how like season three, they're trying to go in a different direction and they're really slamming a lot of tones together. And the only times that I think Stranger Things almost veers towards going off the rails, it never does. It always pulls back to the core of what made it great. But I do think in this season, there are some moments, one of which is exactly what Tim stated, where you're breaking that element of even though everything's fantastic and not realistic it's always it always seems to be grounded in we're not going to stretch it too far in what people could accomplish and there's a few moments with her in this season where i think she throws these curveballs where you're like i don't think a character would do that in this situation and you can't do that all the time when you're watching a show this crazy yeah. but when it stands out to where people like us notice it i think it might have been them uh not really realizing how far off the path they were going and then they did realize it very similar to the one episode of the previous season with when when they meet uh oh, yeah, the, sister. The other sister yeah it didn't sister. you know it, it played with a fun thing and it was cool but it wasn't worth like continuing and, and they, they yeah. do reel it back in like like we had said at the top of this episode the first four or five episodes are definitely more fun it's more of like a jovial upbeat fun kind of thing 
And then it gets super dark, like really dark as it yeah. progresses, which maybe that was their whole intent. Maybe I'm just being an asshole and they, they wanted to misdirect <laughs> you and have you sit there going, this season's getting kind of corny because it was getting kind of corny. Yeah, it's and just like, they, it's a lot of all fun and yeah. yeah, a lot of relationship drama. But yeah, she's okay. I actually like her more in season four. Yeah. Like by the, the end of season four, I like her a lot more. It's just the same thing happens with a lot of the characters here and there of they'll get into situations where it's time to be serious or it's time to like focus on what's going on because your friend is about to die. Something's happening. Some like you're getting chased and they'll stop to have conversations or do other things that it's like, did you forget where you are right now? Like you're, you're stopping to like argue about your relationship or you're stopping to like, make fun of your sibling or something like that while you're still being chased or somebody else has gotten like torn apart. So those are the, the only ones that get me. Robin occasionally gets written that way. Not often, not enough to where it's like, you More don't like her, four. but there's a, yeah, there's a couple moments with her character later on where it's like, is everything a freaking joke? Like I get that you have a good sense of humor, but all you have to do is put me in a situation of beings from another dimension you know, chasing me and my friends. And I don't know, like, I'm not in the mood for, for comedy, like, at all. I'm, I'm in the yeah. mood for running. It's like, if we're getting chased by a guy with a knife, I'm not stopping to remind you, like, hey, by the way, you remember those five bucks you owe me? Or yeah, something exactly. like that? Like, so, yeah, it's we'll get into some of those things in um, season four here and there. But there's a bit of that in season three. It's never enough that it derails it for us. Yeah. Um, but I think it's just, when it pops up, it's, it's noticeable, so it's it's there. But yeah, so as far as we mentioned, like Erica gets introduced, and in the entire season we have Robin, Dustin, Steve, and Erica. They end up intercepting over the walkie-talkie this coded Russian thing that Robin ends up kind of deciphering and figuring it out. It, it's almost very like um, actually comes to mind De Palma's blowout. <laughs> It began with a sound that no one was ever supposed to hear. A man has a couple of drinks, he drives off the road, accident, plain and simple, accident. It's not an accident. I was there. He recorded a murder they say never happened. John Travolta is wired for sound and running for his life in Brian De Palma's blowout from Filmways Pictures, rated R. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, of like listening in on something and hearing something you shouldn't have, and now all of a sudden you're getting pulled into this whole like conspiracy situation going on because like you're wrong place at the wrong time. It's so funny, man, because blowout is an awesome film, and but I didn't actually think that that didn't hit me when I was watching the season. What hit me was uh, Francis Ford Coppola's the conversation. Oh yes. Yep. It's it, that's for anyone who cares, man, like that is an awesome movie. It's extremely quiet and not actiony at all, um, but it's Gene Hackman and it's exactly what Tim said. You know, just think of someone whose life is like audio and recording and all that kind of stuff. And they uncovered something that they should not have heard or seen. And it unfolds. It's that, that onion one layer after another yeah. layer. Before you know it, this person is like stuck in a really fucked up situation. And it just yeah. ratchets up the tension. So for anyone who likes that kind of thing, conspiracies, check out those two movies. We're not going to really go into Mel Gibson's conspiracy theory. Oh, with Julia Roberts. <laughs> I, I mean, it's so uh, easy to throw that one out there, yeah. but that's I mean, not a, it's, it's all right. It, I haven't seen dated. it in 20 years, but I remember liking it, but I haven't gone back to it. I mean, if anything, it also reminds me of like Miracle Mile, 
Of, yeah, definitely. Like picking up the wrong phone kind of deal and hearing a message, and now it just throws everything into chaos to a lesser extent with Miracle Mile. I just yeah, it, it, I, if, I love that movie. <laughs> if our recommendations lead you down some crazy rabbit hole of conspiracy, please stay away from QAnon on, on the web. <laughs> But if you want, you you can watch Oliver Stone's JFK, and then you could be like back and to the left, back and to the left. You know, <laughs> yeah. Get into like Three Days of the Condor, and we'll just that's oh yeah, that's a great one. Robert Redford, Three Days of the Condor, excellent like seventies conspiracy movie. Yeah, because actually, speaking of like the the whole seventies conspiracy, because I know we mentioned with them, because even aside from intercepting that that message for they turn to find out that oh okay so it leads into a secret hidden russian base inside the mall that they end up investigating it also reminds me of another film which i again like (laughs) with an affair to remember i don't think it's an actual influence for them but 1942 uh all through the night with humphrey bogart Mm -hmm. of him and his kind of like hoodlum gamblers they're a bunch of kind of hoods in new york i believe it was and they end up, um, I think it's they're originally looking for their the baker of his favorite cheesecake ends up like getting bumped off. And then he ends up uncovering a secret sect of Nazis that are looking to sabotage or like bomb something in New York and finding out that they've been like hiding out and like infiltrating the the country from there. It's very much like this of the more they peel back layers, it's oh, like there's Russians in the mall. Oh, the Russians have an entire base under the mall. Why do they have a whole base here? Well, it's because the mayor is aware and has been selling land to them. And like it's its whole thing that goes deeper and deeper as time goes on in this season. Yeah, I think it's safe to say that the Duffers, um, you know, they have their their favorites in different genres of film. And I feel like they're big fans of 70s era conspiracy films in general like whatever hopper and joyce or murray whatever there's adult stuff going on yeah when when there's adult things going on that have a a bigger picture conspiracy vibe i always get these feelings of like marathon man with dustin hoffman you know like if they're pulling from like the vibe of really good movies like conversation and all that sort of stuff so if you're ever in in the mood to watch some of that, again, it's not some of the references we're talking about are they're not really direct references. It's more like thematic. It's, yeah, it's like an overall relations. Theme. Yeah. Um, so it's it's not so much. And I think we've mentioned in the previous pieces to this series is not all of these are necessarily direct influences of the Duffer saw it and it was OK. They pulled a piece of that for the movie. Some of them are. Some of them is more so just. If you really watch this season and you dig like, oh, what's going on with Nancy and Jonathan? Like they're getting into this whole reporter thing because they work for this paper and they're trying to investigate it while Nancy is also dealing with the misogyny at the paper while they're trying to like break the big story. If you dig all of that kind of stuff that's going on, then here's a bunch of things that you might also like that are thematically similar while not being direct influences, if that's the boat that you're on right now, of like, oh yeah, like I'm really excited for that kind of stuff. Okay, then yeah, like maybe check out some other things like uh, All the King's Men, I think we were talking about at one point. Yeah. Um, Nancy directly is kind of like an Aaron Brockovich situation going on of her trying to deal with uh, all of the the rampant misogyny in the the professional world while also cracking a case kind of deal. All of those very... Um, 
I think the 1970s really courted the market on paranoid reporter thrillers of like reporters finding. It totally did. Yeah. But I think it's because, you know, that those were reactions to things that had happened in the real world. You had Watergate, you know, the, whole oh, yeah. deep, the deep throat thing. And, you know, and also uh, so many people love uh, the whole Silence of the Lambs deal and all of that. There's a character in his books, uh, Freddie Lowndes, who is a yep. uh, reporter for, I think it's called The Tattler. I think that's the name I think so, yeah. of it. It's like a, you know, a, a, a Sunday paper rag kind of deal that's like trumped up stuff, um, people uncovering different things. Um, but that character makes an appearance in the Hannibal TV show. She's portrayed by a woman. That same character is in Michael Mann's Manhunter, which ended up being like a precursor. It was before Anthony Hopkins yeah. played Hannibal Lecter. But Manhunter is also like a really cool movie. Again, we're just movie nerds, so we're going to throw... If, if we're talking about Stranger Things and we think of stuff, we might throw some things in there that are... Because I think, was just, it Brian Cox as yes. Lecter originally? I yeah. think he plays an awesome Lecter. He's really good. I feel Brian Cox is underrated. I like when seeing him pop up. He's super underrated. And oh man, Tom Noonan plays the Tooth Fairy Killer in that oh. film in, in Manhunter. Uh, Tom Noonan played Kane in Robocop 2. And he also was in um, House of the Devil. And he played Frankenstein in the Monster Squad. Uh, Frankenstein's monster. Uh, he was the the Ripper in Last Action Hero, if I recall. Yes, he was. <laughs> I love Tom Noonan. I wish they'd get him into Stranger Things. I want they should. a Tom Noonan cameo somewhere. Yeah. So, But I think also um, in Red Dragon, was Philip Seymour Hoffman's reporter character? Yes, you're, you're absolutely correct. Um, he plays the same character in Red Dragon, which is a modern remake of Manhunter. It's from the same book, oh, yeah, same yeah, story. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's good stuff. All, all those, All those iterations are fun. Yeah, like you will not find a a lack of reporter or like investigative conspiracy stuff and all of the... Even in Giallo films, you know, oh, so, yeah. so many reporters are rampant in all, all the Italian crime thrillers. So yeah, um, it just makes sense. I mean, if you have a conspiracy, who the hell is going to uncover it more than a reporter? Their whole job is to dig to the bottom of the story. So yeah, uh, it inherently makes sense. And that's another cool thing about Stranger Things is... We talked when we covered the first season about how it resonates with so many different kinds of people. And it really is because they pull their influences from such a broad spectrum of entertainment that you're bound to latch on to someone. I don't know if Tim's noticed this, but we know tons of people and a lot of them watch Stranger Things. It blows my mind how polarizing so many of the characters are to fans. Like I've had... Tons of people be like, I hate Lucas. Lucas is my favorite. Oh, uh, Dustin's annoying as shit. Dustin's the best. Like, yeah. it works. It, like, it, it hits people in so many different ways. It's awesome. Yeah, which I think also was the, a tough part for them of when they bring Max and Billy in in season two, when they're bringing Robin and kind of Erica more to the forefront, even though she was there previously, in season three, and then like bringing in Eddie and everything in season four, of taking a cast you already like and trying to include additional characters and fit them into these pieces and you want to make them cool but you don't want it to make it obvious of you're purposely having them be better than the older characters that way it's like love them love them more they're yeah. new and i think they do a pretty good job as far as that throughout the the series especially this season like robin and they also have to balance it because that is a problem when you have an ensemble like that that yeah. people connect to Something, uh, there's many 
problems, many problems with The Walking Dead. But one thing about The Walking Dead that I think really sucked for, for the, the last five or six seasons, it's this huge cast of people. And quite often, I don't know if it would be because some of the, the actors would be on vacation or something, but you get an episode of just like three or four of the, these characters. And if they were characters you didn't like that much, like you you couldn't care yeah. less about, you know, this person's story, you were stuck with a whole hour that's centered on that. And Stranger Things has quite a lot to play around with and play with it in an equal way where no one's feeling that anyone's being left out. Um, yeah. And I think they they do that pretty smartly by creating um, like different ground level threats in different corners. But then usually that narrative crosses over to where certain groups meet up, if not all the groups. And I think that keeps everybody in and out. Like they're, it's yeah. like a Seinfeld where people are walking in and walking out, you know, but they're there. So you're, you're never really missing anyone too much. Yeah. And I think the, the biggest thing they're running into right now that I know, even the cast, well, the cast himself, the only one I think I heard say it was Millie Bobby Brown saying that like they tried to do a group photo and there was too many people because it was like 50 <laughs> people now. And it's like, we need to start killing people off that you have all of this cast that you've created that it's like you made them that everybody loves them. And it's a case of if any of them die, people will riot, like protect Steve at all costs, all of that stuff. Yeah. But then also everybody then complains of, ah, there's no tension because they're not going to kill off one of the main cast. Mm -hmm. So it's like you complain that they're not killing people off, but you complain that you're going to go crazy if they kill this character off that you like. So it's. But isn't that pop culture? That's like the, pop the fan culture. base. You know, as as a whole, you guys all got to chill out a little bit. You know, it, it's I, I always try to put myself in the shoes of a showrunner and yeah. you, you really can't please everybody. And, you know, I, I kind of sometimes I think it would be pretty cool if like one of the core people got killed off for real, like dead wait for real uh no not oh. yeah, I, I, I should the duffer brothers i, are I just going I, extreme i just meant not a fake out kill because uh, okay. we, we all know that any show that's been around for a while there's always that moment i mean i love peaky blinders but you know certain characters from that show have been like literally in a noose with moments left before they're going to be hung and then they're saved, you know, and you can only save people so many times before you, you really kill any of that tension. But at the same time, going back to my earlier statement, if you asked me to write down who I think should get killed, I'd have a hard time because I really do like almost every character enough to where I wouldn't want to see them die. Yeah. To me, what would have been the big shock for everybody is end season four with Eleven dying. Oh. Just for the fact that it's like she's been hyped up all these seasons of like her training and getting ready. And it's like she's their heavy hitter in all of these things. And she's the reason they're able to stop most of it. And it's like if she dies to the big bad, what do we do now? Like what's the next step here? Now, Tim, narratively speaking, that's freaking brilliant. It is because if you if you just watched Eleven get annihilated, just like torn asunder, yeah. liquefied in a matter of seconds, and then you could just do a slow push in on all the people standing there in horror, like like they don't know what to do, and you cut to butter, da, 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 and, this, and oh my god, like that would be the craziest end you could ever have to a season. Yeah. But I think you'd have a real backlash. It, oh, yeah. Oh, it, would, yeah it would annoy some people so much they'd stop watching, probably. Yeah. Which sucks, but I think that would happen. 
So yeah, I think we'll we'll touch on all of our expectations for season five at the end of the next episode. I don't want to pull us no, off topic. It's too so much. hard not to, it not is, to go to it that is. season, but there are some things we got to still touch on. A, a yeah, because I w- the last thing as far as kind of this whole theme we were talking about here of all of the the finding the conspiracy or finding the the darkness just below the the seemingly happy surfaces of like, oh, the carnival and the mall and all of this. But it's like there's murders going on at the carnival. There's like this stuff going on underneath the mall. There's like this other stuff going out of the mill and the pool. It's, it's very, very Lynchian. It's very Lynchian. It's very blue velvet. Walking around and like finding the, the air in the field and getting pulled into this whole thing of, oh, it's like the suburbs. But what's just below the surface of the suburbs here? So like not directly, but it's like it's has yeah. that very it's same got some vibe. it's got some blue velvet and it's definitely got I, I think there's an, an odd quality that's reminiscent of Sharp Objects, which was a, a novel turned into a really awesome HBO show with uh, starred Amy Adams and Sophia Lillis. And that was also a show about you got your nice, beautiful suburbia, but what's going on underneath. So, yeah. And yeah, that, I mean, those are those are great things to get into. I actually think people that like Stranger Things, but also don't mind more dry, slow burn kind of mystery. If if you're really into the detective element of Stranger Things, you might want to try David Lynch's uh, Twin Peaks TV series. Yeah, it's it's really strange. It doesn't grab everybody, uh, but it's cool. It, it's got some good stuff in it. Yeah, and I think it's also a case of it's very character focused of you start to kind of get introduced and get used to like all of these, the oddities and eccentric behavior of all the various townsfolk of Twin Peaks. Just don't expect it to get like supernatural and grand scale because there, there's no. Yeah, it was because Agent know. Cooper isn't going to be mind throwing uh, <laughs> yeah. evil Bob or whatever through the walls. Yeah, nothing like that. But there are some <laughs> there are some alien seeming humans in that show that like seem like they're from another freaking planet. Yeah. Whether uh, intentionally or not, I think that's just the Lynch way. So I think is it time to get into the? There's a whole other subplot to this season. There the is horror part. Yeah, I guess we were talking about that tonal shift into you know adult territory of dark shit and here we go where do we start because it's influenced by a lot of different stuff i mean i would probably say out of the gate for me um Mm -hmm. like there's a lot of ones that are maybe to a lesser extent but for me at least i think the carpenter influence from previous seasons is still here with 87's prince of darkness i've got a message for you this is the shape of fear you're not going to like it. This is the color of hell. What is it? And this is the power of the Prince of Darkness. From John Carpenter, director of Halloween. A vision of the most powerful evil of all. Prince of Darkness. Where are you? Rated R. Yeah, for sure. With Billy getting possessed and then being controlled by the Mind Flayer, like urged by Mind Flayer to start bringing other people in to the mill. That way they can also get possessed and they can kind of build their numbers from there and all of that. Very Prince of Darkness of like that swirling evil pool in the basement or whatever as they're all investigating it in the the church uh, for anybody that hasn't seen Prince of Darkness. We'll go brief. Yeah, very it. brief. We want to talk about Carpenter a lot later in, in his own episode. But Tim's right. We should throw a little bit in on what Prince of Darkness is. 
long story short, a group of researchers and a priest, they all end up spending the night inside this church as they're investigating this very uh, swirling liquid evil that's down in this tube down there. And then it sprays into one person's mouth and they get possessed. And then they're bringing other people to also get possessed from there as they're trying to bring this other portal and open this gate to allow another evil into the world. It's a metaphysical 80s like horror fest. Like it's a monster movie, but it deals with demons, but it also deals with science. It's like, it's a really bizarre, unique uh, merging where they're talking about metaphysics and they're talking about like, um, is evil a, a tangible physical entity? Like is Satan an actual physical thing? And, and this this energy has been like rebuilding itself and, and strengthening itself. And you've got the Catholic Church. They've known about it, like a secret sect of the Catholic Church has known about this. And they've been trying to suppress like Satan himself from rising up. But yeah. he's getting enough power now to where he can control like insects and maybe people with with um, a lower willpower. It, it's very wacky film. It doesn't always connect but it's super fun, and I, I think it's one of John Carpenter's most underrated movies, and I know yeah. Tim loves it too, so we're, we're like huge Prince of Darkness fans. Over the years, I actually think it ties the fog as my favorite Carpenter. Wow, oh, favorite it Carpenter. It's so Favorite hard. Carpenter horror film. Yeah. Because Big Trouble Little China is number one of the game, number one in my heart. But What yeah, about like- Elvis with Kurt Russell? <laughs> <laughs> John Carpenter's the man, and we're going to do like a three-hour breakdown of his career because he's amazing. Like you said, it gets the power to slowly start controlling like lower willpower, like insects and lower creatures. And in this, we got the mind player is bringing all the rats in and all of that. It's it's looking to slowly increase its influence. That way, it's able to get physically into the world again, kind of deal. Prince of Darkness is like the beginning influence to the beginning element of the mind flare in this season. Then it like steps up to influence number two, where you start getting into like a hive mind aspect. And there's so many films. I I mean, you basically have invasion of the body snatchers, which is an awesome novel. And that's been adapted uh, three times in a way. Well, probably four or five times, but I think the key ones are, You've got your 50s one where everybody was freaked out about communism, and that's a black and white film. The original Invasion of the Body Snatchers with Kevin McCarthy, super classic, awesome sci-fi. Then you've got my favorite one, which is the Philip Kaufman mid-70s, late-70s. There are very special films that plunge you into a world of total terror, unleashing emotions so intense, so awesome. There is no defense. Prepare yourself. From deep space, invasion of the body snatchers, rated PG. That is the same story, but because it's taking place in the latter 70s, self-help was a big deal and all these self-help gurus. So they kind of take the Red Menace element out and they put in this um, paranoia about losing your individuality and all this sort of stuff. And it's set in San Francisco in in a bustling city. The cast is what makes, like the movie's great, but you've got Donald Sutherland, Veronica Cartwright, Jeff Goldblum, Leonard Nimoy. Like the list just keeps going on. A Brooke Adams, so many awesome people in that movie. And then there was an Abel Farrar 
version called Body Snatchers from the 90s, which a lot of people hate, but I want to cover it in an unsung horror because it's super good and it kind of plays on the exact same theme, but in more of a military industrial complex vibe, which is really cool because if you're talking about a space seed that becomes a pod that then becomes an exact replica of you, except it has no emotions and no goals, except for the hive mind, the goal of the entire race. That's it. There's no individuality. If you throw that into a big city, like in the 70s version, it's awesome because a lot of people don't really look at you or pay much attention. There's that paranoia. Yeah. And then if you take it to Abel Farrar's point, uh, Forrest Whitaker is actually in the Body Snatchers film. Setting it in a military complex is super brilliant because so many soldiers and everything, it's all about being regimented and getting the job done. Getting rid of your individuality. (laughs) Yeah. So it's super cool. Like, you know, there's also the invasion, which is a very ill-fated Daniel Craig. um, Yeah, that's also a movie. What's the the girl's name? I think Naomi Um, Watts, was it? Or is it Nicole Kidman? It might be. But there's this movie called The Invasion that is another adaptation of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. It should have been amazing, but the film was cut so heavily and and re parts were refilmed and they re-edited it three or four times. You can watch this film, The Invasion, and it feels like you're watching nothing but the center of scenes put together. Scenes don't have like a beginning and an end. So if you want to really watch some great Invasion of the Body Snatchers stuff, I would say go with those first three. The interesting thing about, as you said, with all the different body snatchers coming from the source material that you have multiple adaptations of the same story, but applied with a different lens based on the time that it got released of like, what's on the forefront of people's minds, like what's in the cultural zeitgeist that all of them are worth watching because it's not watching the same movie multiple times. You're getting a different complete film each time from there. I mean, until you get to the invade, which it was Nicole Kidman, as he said, but you get to the invasion, which in and of itself loses its individuality. So it's the only movie of the body snatchers that I guess got body snatched. Mm-hmm. Um, and and we ended up with the pod movie. Yeah, that's a weird uh, switch on reality where the stu- <laughs> the studio removed any kind of individuality and, yeah. and creative voice from the it's invasion. The most they, they, meta. It, yeah, it's, it's actually the purest invasion of the body statues. Um, but really, like, you know, Tim and I, we, we, we love that concept and many other people do as well because there are elements of the thing that are very similar. Uh, there's also Robert Heinlein's The Puppet Masters, which are very similar. And really, it's a brilliant concept because we all care very much about who we are. And the idea of going to sleep and losing that and everyone that knows you thinks it's you, but you're not you anymore. That's a terrifying concept. Yeah. So I'm glad that that the Duffers were like, that concept's so goddamn good. We're going to we're going to like mutate it again and we're going to yeah. work it into this. There's also a movie called The Hidden. It has the mind of an alien and the body of anyone it wants. It's here on Earth, and it's not human. Nothing on Earth can stop it, except the cop who followed it here. You think it's over now? The Hidden. You're wrong. Rated R. 
directed by Jack Shoulder, who made A Nightmare on Elm Street 2. That stars Kyle MacLachlan and a guy named Michael Norrie. And it is a wonderful, underrated 80s gem about a body-hopping alien. So you have an alien cop and an alien outlaw criminal that end up, they both end up coming to Earth. So it's the cop chasing after this this creature but the creature just goes into your mouth puppets you like ratatouille and then just like <laughs> it where it, 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 it's it's so bizarre the the aliens love fast cars they love speed and they love heavy metal so they just run on this rampage We'd get along oh uh, yeah really uh, <laughs> But I, I really would hope that, that some anyone out there, especially if you're a Kyle MacLachlan fan, check out The Hidden, because not only is it an influence on Stranger Things Season 3, it is a really, really wonderful 80s action sci-fi horror movie. Yeah. Which, I mean, at this point, it's you can have a weekend of this. Like, go find Prince of Darkness. Find it's ridiculous. The, uh, the 78 Body Snatchers, The Hidden. The thing, like the night of the creeps, to, and then Slither. Night of the creeps. Yeah, it's like night of the creeps, and then you got Slither, which is James Gunn kind of making a loving retelling. I mean, it's super influenced by Night oh, of the Creeps. Yeah. We'll save a few of these for in-depth reviews when we're doing more like '80s fun, you know, horror movies. And yeah, stuff. like I'll. I don't want to get too far into stuff like the thing, just because it's, we're going to do our John. It's Carpenter one of the thing. greatest horror movies ever made. We'll we'll get into it, but you can watch all of these. Actually, also, um, 97 Paul W.S. Anderson's Event Horizon comes to oh, mind. Oh, yeah, yeah. A haunted ship. I'm getting some really strange readings in here. A missing crew. This place is a tomb. DJ, where are you? An infinite evil. This ship has been beyond the boundaries of our universe. Who knows what it's brought back with it? Vacate! No! I want off this ship. You can't leave. She won't let you. Event Horizon. Rated R. As far as in that movie on the space station, they're there and they end up finding another ship that supposedly ended up like going through into a wormhole as part of a test. But what they found there and came back with drove everybody insane and was essentially they teleported into hell. And so Sam Neill gets possessed and then he is getting rid of people and trying to reopen this gate and get all of this back. And I mean, like all of these other ones we mentioned, like Prince of Darkness, all of this, the Mind Flayer is trying to reopen a gate and possess people to act as his agent to get this gate reopened so it can enter a physical space in the other world. And that goes right in line with all of these movies we just mentioned from there. So Yeah, totally speaking, they're similar. And, and especially thematically they're extremely similar yeah um we'll probably we'll probably talk a lot more about event horizon if tim and i ever decide to do a one-hit wonder episode because paul ws anderson also made mortal Kombat. he made one good movie <laughs> he, he made he, a bunch of good movies. oh come on he made event horizon that's like his best movie he and also he, did he, mortal Kombat. he did yeah i guess he did the I mean, first resident evil i mean he did the rest of them too but When's the last time you watched the first Resident Evil? Uh, this October on Screen uh, Refresh. That's not a good movie, but anyway. <laughs> now, anybody that listens to this episode and then listens to Screen Refresh coming October when I strong arm everybody into watching Resident Evil 1, they're going to be like, ah, good. that's where the seeds were planted. I got so excited to rewatch it 
I was like, I haven't watched Resident Evil in 15 years. And I was like, I know why. So it's not horrible. It's the best of the Resident Evil series. So, well, I'm holding out hope for the Netflix show. Yeah, I'm sure it's going to disappoint you. (laughs) I just don't. They they can't get Resident Evil right. It seems like such an easy thing to get right. It's just, it's so easy to get it right. And they like, it's not a tough story and you have all of it right there. And everybody is clamoring to just like, yeah, just give us the exact story from the first and second game. I think it's cursed. "Ah." Resident Evil is cursed because there was a time where every horror fan was flipping out because George Romero was going to make a Resident Evil. And I truly think he would have flubbed it too. Like there's just this curse where like they can't get Resident Evil made correctly. Yeah. I really don't know if you're keeping all this entire Resident Evil offshoot that isn't in any way an influence to Stranger Things. Yeah, because as far as the the thing goes, as we have all these people start getting possessed or as we have all these people start getting kind of infected as a host with the mind flare. I think Nancy and Jonathan, when they're at the hospital investigating the other woman, they end up getting attacked by two of the guys from the newspaper. And then I think they like knock them out. And then the guys ends up turning and melding themselves into like a mini mind flare type thing that then ends up chasing them, which is very, very the thing of like yeah. this weird amorphous blob of arms and legs and turning. I mean, well, when but I say it that ha- way, it sounds like the shunting, but like, yeah. <laughs> There's heavy Cronenberg vibes too, like the body horror element, like from the fly and all that stuff. Yeah. But I would say, I agree. It's more, it's more the thing because just because of the, the threatening um, monstrous elements, it's like this unhinged, what the hell are we watching kind of uh, horror, you know? Yeah. Cause it's a, a physical body of somebody acting and looking like who, you know, who then just ends up kind of transforming into this otherworldly creature. Which then yeah. they all end up exploding into goo and um, joining the pile to turn into the giant mind flare, which is very, looks kind of like, it was kind of like a blob scene of all these people just exploding into goo and going in the pile. Um, when we were covering um, the loss of identity, mm-hmm. I, I actually meant to mention a film and I'm going to mention it very quickly. It's a 50s science fiction film that I grew up loving that terrified me when I was a kid. Invaders from Mars. Yep. They arrived without warning. They hid where no one would look. Are you okay, Dad? Everything's fine now. Baby! I got They're after the one person on Earth who knows who they are. David and what they've become. <laughs> Invaders from Mars, rated PG. I really meant to mention that back with the other one. So pardon me while I jump back for a moment. But Invaders from Mars is an awesome, classic, super vibrant 50s sci-fi movie about a little kid who is positive that a UFO landed over a hill and that his family and police officers and all these different people have gone over the hill to check it out. And they're getting these little crystals stuck in the back of their necks where they're being manipulated by a a greater force and it's to to mine copper so that they can use copper as the uh, fuel for them to to get uh, back home or wherever they're trying to go. Yeah. And Toby Hooper did a great remake of that with Karen Black. So there are two Invaders from Mars movies, the 50s one and the 80s one from Toby Hooper. And in terms of tone, the 80s Invaders from Mars 
is very tonally similar to Stranger Things. And I think people that dig all of that, like Amblin Entertainment stuff that we talked about in the first episode, with a little bit more of an adult edge, because there are a few like scary things. The the creatures are pretty cool looking. Yeah. Like it's still um, a pooper. <laughs> yeah. If, if if you like Stranger Things, watch Invaders from Mars. I say watch both of them. But yeah, I think we both kind of covered the films, like the influences. And I think now we're down to like a little bit more direct references um, where they kind of chose something. We picked a few of the ones that really stood out to us the most that we liked. And first episode of this season, I think it's called Susie Do Copy is the title. The way that uh, Nancy Wheeler and Jonathan, they like blasted awake from their sleep from an alarm clock and they're frantically like running around trying to throw on their clothes and they like she doesn't want to be late for her internship and Jonathan like falls out of frame while he's trying to put his pants on that is like exactly taken from back to the future um <laughs> and and I think that's a great like little nod in terms of the way a scene's blocked and set up and shot there's another nod to Indiana Jones. It's in the third Last Crusade. There's a sequence underneath in, in the Russian thing. I think it's towards the end of the season. Yeah, because it's um, it's after they invade the the underground mall Russian base, and then they get captured, and they have uh, Stephen Robin tied up back to back in chairs after they give them. Uh, I think they drug him. I don't know if it was supposed to be truth serum. But yeah, they dope him up on that. And their conversation and and like everything about it just feels like Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Dad! 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 Head for the fireplace! See that table over there to your right? No, your other right. Yeah, okay. And you see those scissors? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, well, I think that if we move at the same time, we could get over there. And then maybe I could kick the table and knock them into your lap. And I could cut the binds. Yeah, and we could get out of here. Got you. Okay, yeah, we can do that. When Sean Connery is tied to uh, Harrison Ford, they're like tied back to back in a chair. But yeah, that cracked me up. Which I know also, as far as like references go, we talked about how the Mind Flayer grows large and attacks the mall. But it's very T-Rex in the visitor center at the end of uh, Jurassic Park of all of the kids running around and trying to fight this. Where in this case here, they're fighting the Mind Flayer as opposed to fighting the the raptors that are then getting trounced by the T-Rex. It's that same visitor center feel for the last yeah. part of this movie. Yeah, that scene, it's just so clear. It's so weird because, like, it's obviously not a dinosaur at all. And they're not in that hall, that big hall where you see the T-Rex fighting the uh, the, the Velociraptors. It, it's a very different place. Yeah. But it's there's something about the um the foreground, middle ground, like the way it's shot, it just has this nod to that whole sequence. And I also think there's like there's a few shots in that, I think it's the last episode, when when characters are seeing the mind flare, it feels Jurassic Park of like when they're seeing like face to face with a raptor when the kids are like trying to avoid them in the kitchen. You know, there's a lot of that feel, that cat and mouse, uh, and then it's like, yeah. there it is. I know I mentioned fleetingly uh, Super 8. The the creature from that, very different from the Mind Flayer, but there's a few moments in that film too where the way those kids are like looking at that thing and it's so big and it has like multiple appendages and stuff that gave me a little bit of Super 8 vibes too. But yeah, there's those. I think anyone who grew up and ever saw the never ending story 
Um, you know, how do how do you not like that's not even like a reference. That's just like in your face. Stranger Things becomes a musical for a hot minute. Like they just went all out and said, screw it. We're going to do it. It's a which, pretty good rendition of the song. Yeah, which I mean, I you guess know? makes sense because a lot of the Stranger Things kids are from musical theater traditionally. Like I think Gaten, who plays Dustin, um, I forgot what ones he was in. I think he's he now was on Dear Evan Hansen now, but he and was I think he, um, in... I think he knew Sadie Sink prior. Yeah, because I, I know think... I know Sadie Sink was in Annie. I think she yeah, was in... and then I think um, Caleb, who plays Lucas was also in some things as well. So I think it was the three of them. So it makes sense for them to do like a musical scene. The only thing, I know everybody loves this never-ending story scene. It drives me crazy because it's, first of all, I don't love the character of Susie who's just like a child prodigy who can hack the Pentagon. She is one of my least favorite characters. I have to. But then also it's like, it's a life or death situation. We have like lives on the line and it's, I'm still not going to do it until you sing me a song. It's like, no, like, sorry, you took too long. My friends are all dead. Like, it's a wasted time. Okay, let me just be clear on this. I haven't heard from you in a week, and now you want a mathematical equation that you should know so you can save the world? Susie Poo, I promise I will make it up to you as soon as possible. You can make it up to me now. What? I want to hear it. Not right now. Yes, now, Dusty Bun. Susie Poo, this is urgent. Yes, yes, you're saving the world. I heard you the first time, but Ged is also saving Earthsea, and he's about to confront the shadows. So this is Susie signing off. Yeah, they, they could have taken that opportunity to write a couple lines of dialogue for Dustin, where he could have he could have sang, my friends are going to die. What the hell's wrong with you? Like, there could have been a joke in that, where yeah. he actually sang the importance of the situation for, like, Two or three sentences. It was like, enough. Let's do yeah. this. And I know people love that song. I think it, I mean, we're nitpicking. It goes on longer than it needs to. Or even it if does. like they sing it while she's working, it's like, I'll do it, but sing you the song. Yeah. And then they, like, they're singing it while she's still getting it done. So it's not like she's holding it over him kind of deal. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's a small thing. Yeah. To have as a grievance, but yeah. we're, we're not trying to bring up a reference and then just shit all over it. Um, you, know, <laughs> you know what but, a fun Easter egg is? This part, yeah, I hate. this Easter egg sucks. It's a rotten egg, but no, it's a it, it's a fun little callback. And again, you know, Neverending Story is one of those movies that, like, thematically there isn't really a connection, but it helped it helped shape their sense of awe, I think, and wonder and innocence, like when they were kids. Because I know I saw it when I was a kid and. There, there's some pretty heavy themes in that film. I mean, the nothing sweeping over the land, I, I guess that does sort of tie into Stranger Things. If you look at the, the way the Upside Down grows through Hawkins yeah. and like drains it. I Look at me. I, I First, I said that there wasn't a thematic connection and talk about it long enough and there is. <laughs> um, but yeah, so Never Ending Story does play into that, you know? Which I know as far as, um, I don't know if you, I we don't want to go like, you can find all of the Easter eggs. I'm sure there's whole lists dedicated to them out there. I found it funny when Dustin refers to the the station wagon as the Griswold family. Um, oh, yeah. Throughout, <laughs> um, we're actually at the, the end of season three when Robin and Steve, after Scoops Ahoy is done, they end up getting a job at a video store. And I think one of the posters is Firestarter. 
which brings us back to our season one discussion sure of like yeah they they know so they might as well just throw it up on a wall i also think i mean the majority of the references are winks and nods for fans of of all of those films but at the same time it, it isn't just like empty fan service i think it actually a lot of those things add realism and propel the characters because they're acknowledging that these characters like i had mentioned before like in 1985 i was 10 and um like i said i think the first stranger things is 84 but i know in this season season three is taking place in 1985 i think it's one one year later or something like that so i was 10 years old when those kids are doing their thing. Now, if I were one of those characters, I would be referencing these films oh, yeah. a- as ways to figure out uh, a way to combat certain things. I mean, when the kids dress up as Ghostbusters, it-, it lets you know as a viewer that Dustin and all of those kids know about the terror dog and they know about like some of this silly lore that's in films. Yeah. If any of it's rooted in fact... And might, like, if there was an upside down, if that actually could be real, why wouldn't you think that maybe some films you've seen that dealt with riffs in, in things like that, maybe you'd just go with your gut instinct and be like, it worked in the movie, let's try it. Yeah, and, and it like would work. It's only point yeah. of reference. <laughs> so some of these references, like I said, it's pretty cool. It actually, like, lets you get inside of these characters and know things that they know that aren't written and spoken about. So we all know that Steve has seen Fast Times at Ridgemont High. So if yeah. anything were to ever come up where Steve references it, it's like, that's so fucking cool. Like, he he knows the movie like I know the movie. So they're doing a good job of, like, almost meta-merging made-up characters with a knowledge that the actual human beings watching the show also share. So if someone were to say that's like the thing... It's like, ah, oh, cool. You know, they saw the thing. They know. Like, they, they know. Yeah. Get it's, the, it's not get, just get like the flamethrower. Yeah. Yeah. Like, get that flamethrower. Try burning that shit. Fire usually kills everything, you know? Fire or cold. Did you, have you seen the blob? Try freezing it, you know? So I think we gave them enough stuff to go check out. I, yeah. I really, I feel like every episode we end up saying a really eclectic list, but I feel like this is a really eclectic list to go from like, an affair to remember to the thing to yeah. uh, three days of the condor to like to back to the future to like yeah. uh, invaders from Mars. It's, yeah. It's all over the place. Like some of the feedback that I got from people, which has been awesome was that like they were excited about a reference we pointed out because they, they saw that too, but then yeah. they were like doubly excited of, I didn't know about this and I went and watched it. And you know, Tim's way too humble the way I think our season one, I remember him closing it out with, you know, maybe you could find a couple things to watch. And it's like, buddy, we threw them some really like, like if you only find a couple okay, yeah, things, like, like a couple dozen. Of... Yeah, <laughs> this is a few dozen things for you to watch. So um, thanks for joining us. Uh, this has been extremely fun little mini series. And, uh, you know, we're going to drop the fourth one. And I'm kind of feeling sad that we don't get to record a fifth one, you know, the yeah. following week for people. This sucks. Like, it's not. It's not very cool that we're almost at the end. So we'll have to, it'll be a a very long pause before season five's episode ends up coming out then, um, for us at least. But we we also might run a little long on the fourth season. That might, that might happen. Yeah. So I think as far as um, any of the 
the stuff that you noticed or any of the influences or any of the things that you didn't hear on this? I know, like, we didn't cover everything that's a possible influence from the season, but just kind of a, a bunch of things that might be fun for you guys. But if there's anything that comes to mind for you, we'd love to hear it. We'd love to let us know. Love to chat with you guys on what stuff you liked, what stuff that felt that got missed. You can do that on our Gmail. Shoot us an email at don'topenthispodcast at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Twitter at don'topenthispod. And if you want to reach, I know this guy, Mike, that runs our Instagram. Uh, Mike, what is that Instagram? Our Instagram is don't open this podcast. It's a little on the nose. Tim runs our Twitter at don't open this pod. And you could track both of us down on our individual Instagrams. Tim's is Mr. Time and mine is Foul Signo Art. We really, really can't thank you guys enough for taking time out to join us. So catch us next for the season four, which is, I guess, the, the mini-series finale for us for now, before going back to your regularly scheduled Don't Open This Podcast. So for Mike and Tim, this has been Don't Open This Podcast. Take care, guys. Stop it!